0: Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with that. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly it's Shallow Small Group, we try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. And you'll never hear us use the term accountability unless you're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth? Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. It wasn't pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name.
1: What's going on, buddy? Oh, hey, man.
0: How's it going? That's good. Chief. Yeah. Oh, dude. Captain, what's going on? We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. Group discussion? You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? Uh, that's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague.
1: Who wants cake?
0: Come on and get it! And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy. And we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. And outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word super isn't superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. Won't you join us? Figure
1: <laughs> figured that would be a little bit different than what you're used to saying. I first, uh, as I was looking for an opener uh, for this message and whatever else, um, many of you also know that I am very lighthearted. Um, I love to laugh, absolutely. Um, but as I was looking for something to, to kind of change the mood or maybe change the tone of, of messages that are preached in church, I happened to come across this, and as a, as a result, I found out that, you know, this is not something that is uh, brand new. This is something that's been out for, for some time, but um, I found it amusing, Um, And I think sometimes we may lose uh, that every once in a while, Uh, the the ability to laugh, okay? There's a lot to be said about something that's funny. So um, this is not one of those messages. This is church. I don't want you to laugh at all. There's no laughter. This is serious business, okay? Amen. That's right. Well, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, I trust that everybody had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you for those that have decided to show up today. Uh, to study God's Word and to, uh, to hear what God has prepared. Um, and I'm just going to ask, you know, how was your Thanksgiving? Did everybody get enough to eat? Did everybody get a chance to, to spend time with family and to kind of reconnect and, and get yourselves, uh, you know, away from work and, and, and really just kind of get filled up with just one another's time? Hopefully you did because I know I did. We had a great trip to New York. Um, we tried to spend as much time possible with my in-laws up there. Uh, we spent some time with my sister-in-law who just Completely outdoes herself every single time uh, with with too much food, and so we uh, we just had a just had a blast and just just thankful to be back here. It, it was absolutely absolutely so. I wanted to talk to you today um, about this this idea and this concept of of being available, and how important that really uh, is in the Christian walk. You know, the game had just finished up, and all the plans were set. I found myself traveling back home with my brother, uh, and what lay before me was this opportunity to have a bunch of fun. You see, when you're 10 years old, your best friend is your entire world, right? I grew up with my best friend, which that's, well, you, you couldn't separate us. We were at baseball games together. We went to school together. Uh, we spent the night at each other's homes. It was the time of our lives, except there was a little bit of a problem, Somewhere around the third inning, when we had decided that we were going to spend the night at each other's house, we forgot to mention to our parents that that's what we were going to do. Now, my friend was the type of guy that, you know, you go over to his house, and, you know, you may stay up a little too late. You may eat some of the wrong foods. You may get a chance and opportunity to watch some of the wrong movies. The one thing that I was looking forward to, however, at 10 years old, was getting together with my buddy grabbing our fishing poles, hopping on our bikes, and going a couple blocks down at about one or two o'clock in the morning. You see, when you go down there, we grew up in a different time then. We go down there, we went fishing, this opened up to this amazing uh, space. We would go through this guy's yard and it would open up into this enormous bay with this massive seawall attached to it, this old rickety dock with fishing lights that were at, uh, on, on either post, right? And so we would spend time, hours and hours, just down there in the middle of the night, just fishing and having a good old time. This is something we did on a regular basis and I was looking forward to doing that. The only problem was my parents didn't know and I needed to make sure that this was a cool thing that we can get this done. So as soon as I hit the door, I go right to the phone, right? I grab the phone and I start dialing. Two, I'm dating myself, aren't I? For those of you who never had a rotary phone, I'm dating myself. Two, six, no that's not it, hang it up. Two, six, two, one, one. One, four. Busy. Oh, well, let me try it again. Two, six, two, one, 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 four. Busy again. He wasn't available. Well, no matter. I'll, I'll try his parents line. Two, six, two, one, two, one, three. And that's busy, too. So I hung up the phone. I, I, I figured I'm not going to have a chance to do this. And then what starts to re- I started to realize in that moment was all this fun that we had had before, this, this memory, this euphoric uh, position of, of just going out and enjoying ourselves, I, was gonna, I might miss out on that. And that started to worry me. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever worried about missing out on something so profound that kind of gives you that anxiety? Today we're going to look at the book of Isaiah, specifically Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And in the text, what I hope to see happen is that we'll see that one man's experience with the Lord changed his life forever. It is my hope that after this, that you'll be able to answer the question, personally, are you available? So turn with me, if you will, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6. It's in the Old Testament. Um, If you didn't bring a Bible, it's not a problem. We're going to have the slides up here for you guys to follow along. If you don't have a Bible and you have a phone or you have a tablet, pull it out. Get it out in front of you to the book of Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And before we go ahead and do that, I want to give you some kind of context. I want to give you a little bit of background, okay? Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the book itself. I want to, tell you, I want to talk about what's going on in general in the region where this takes place. I want to talk a little bit about the person who Isaiah was. And so during the years that kings ruled Israel and Judah, God spoke through prophets Although some prophets predicted future events, their primary role was to speak God's people back to him. The most eloquent of these prophets was Isaiah, who analyzed the failures of the nation around him and pointed to the future Messiah who would bring peace to the nation and all the earth. Isaiah spoke more than any prophets in the greatest nation of Israel, which would enter into the second advent of the Messiah. You see, these years in Israel's history, around 739 to 680 B.C., ...were a time of great struggle, both politically and spiritually. The northern kingdom of Israel was deteriorating politically, spiritually, and militarily... ...and finally fell to the Assyrian Empire in 622. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah looked as though it would collapse and fall to Assyria as well... ...but it it withstood the attack. In this political struggle and spiritual decline, Isaiah rose to deliver a message to the people of Judah... His message was simple. It was that they should trust God who promised a glorious kingdom through Moses and David and not to rely on, any of the, on, on Egypt or any other foreign power. Rather, the Lord himself would pr- protect Israel and be its defender. Simply put, Isaiah's primary purpose was to remind his readers of that very special relationship that they had with Yahweh. The problem was is that Israel did not uphold their end of the bargain. They forgot. And so what Israel forgets is the, is the four main elements of the Mosaic Covenant. They forgot about the exodus. They forgot about the sealing of the Old Covenant. They forgot about the giving of the laws and the Old Covenant rituals. But the one main reason, the one thing that stuck out, the reason why Israel uh, wanted to make sure that everyone understood was that they'd forgotten the promise that they made with Yahweh. Way back in the Exodus. And so Israel is God, or excuse me, Isaiah is God's spokesman. He's the mouthpiece. Isaiah, you could say, works for the law firm Holy Trinity and Associates. Okay? He's a faithful employee. And so it is brought to Isaiah's attention that Israel has a breach in his contract. He schedules a conference. This is a conference call, of course. And rightly calls Judah out. He says, fellas, you remember the deal. You you, you remember the deal, right? You remember my client, right? Yahweh, you remember God. Okay, so you remember the deal that if, as I'm bringing you out of Egypt, that you will be my people and I will be your your God. You you guys remember that, right? It was in the contract. You saw it, right? Okay, good. So you you do remember that. Do you also remember, Israel, that uh, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possessions among the people. Do, Do you remember that section of the contract? You, got, you guys got that. Okay, good. I, I want to make sure. I want to make sure we're going back over this covenant and you guys understand this. Good. How, any chance you guys read the, the whole contract? I know none of us skip over anything in a contract, right? Even when we're signing up for new cell phones and stuff like that, we just breeze right through it, don't we? And we just sign up. i just give you my phone, give you my car, give you my thing, right? Okay. This is exactly what Isaiah is doing. Reminding of the blessings and curses. That little section of blessings and curses... In Deuteronomy 28, did you guys remember signing that? Uh, Okay. Now, since you're in breach of contract, my client, who's beyond fair and just, is willing to give you another chance. He kind of figured, sort of remembered, and said to himself, you know, these guys might make a mistake. So I'm here, Israel, to give you guys another shot on behalf of my client. On behalf of Yahweh, I'm going to give you guys another shot. And I'm going to remind you so you don't forget it. So the person, let's talk about the person real quick, okay, of of Isaiah, We already know that he has establishment. establishment. He works for the greatest law firm in the land. right? He, he's, that's what he's there. He's the, the Lord's mouthpiece. He's a prophet who served the southern kingdom of Judah. His father is Amos, okay, who was the brother of Amaziah, the king of Judah, who served just prior to. Okay? Isaiah comes from a royal line. But the Bible isn't clear 100%. I wouldn't say it's dogmatic um, that he's cousins with Uzziah. There are some suggestions that hint at the fact that he is cousins, but we know that Isaiah takes his place as priest and prophesies for four of the Judean kings, Uzziah, Jatham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Okay, we good with that? And so now where we find ourselves in the book, the book of Isaiah opens up with a vision that concerns Judah and Jerusalem that's given to Isaiah. He addresses the rebellious nature as they have turned their back on Yahweh as they worship meaningless sacrifices in God's temple in Jerusalem. And in doing so, they've alienated themselves from Yahweh. And so in the five chapters leading up to that, you find the sin judgments, and now we find ourselves at the footsteps at Isaiah 6 when Isaiah is ready to be commissioned. Are we good with that? Everybody know where we are? We haven't lost anybody yet. Kids, you still awake? I'm going to be calling on you guys because I'm going to need your help here later on, okay? So let's read Isaiah 6. Verse 1 In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each had six wings, with two wings they covered their faces, and two they covered their feet, and two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, <clears throat> excuse me, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And one of his seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs, taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, "See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for." And then I heard a voice from the Lord saying, "Whom shall I send, and who will go for us?" And I said, here am I. Send me. I want to focus in on the very opening portion of this, where it says, in the year that King Uzziah died. We enter into this story uh, at the end of King Uzziah's reign. We don't know much about Uzziah. What we do know from the scriptures is that he was chosen to be king at age 16 and uh, and led Judah uh, to restore the kingdom. We know that he worshipped the Lord faithfully. We know that he was blessed in the process. We also know that through many years of service, he became very successful and very, very powerful, which poses as a problem, as you all are aware. The problem with with power usually is pride. When you start to become powerful in anything that you're doing, when you start to gain uh, certain things in your life, gain uh, a positive traction, if you will, uh, you tend to forget how you got there. This is no different with Uzziah. Uzziah finds himself in that position. And unfortunately, like certain people, it went to his head. He became unfaithful to the Lord and let pride consume him. And on one occasion, Uzziah made a terrible mistake. Despite the warnings of the priests. The priest had warned him to stay out of the temple. They had warned him to not go into the holiest of holies. Uzziah gets the idea that he's better than that. He decides to go to and burn incense inside the temple, which he's not allowed to do. Remember, the temple in itself, where they carried the Ark of the Covenant, that was for whom? That was for the Levites. That's for the priests and priests alone. Uzziah is a king, he's not a priest. He has no business being in there. But because of his pride and because of his arrogance, he feels, you know what? This is my country. I've done so well. Done so well. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to go ahead and do this. And so he does. And what happens is amazing. God smote him with leprosy. Now, leprosy back in those days is not just so much skin condition. It is. okay. It's also a, a, a position. Nobody wants to be around you when you're leprous. You're an outcast. Okay? People don't have anything to do with you. In fact, the way they look at it is that you've done something so wrong that God has shown no favor on you. And that you're to be cast aside and pushed aside and marginalized and not to be dealt with again. And that's where you find Uzziah. Uzziah, for the duration of his kingship, was cast aside, put aside, and that was it for him. Where we pick up the story is Isaiah's mourning the death of King Uzziah. In the year that King Uzziah died. This is where it opens up. Now, I'm not sure, as I was doing a little study on this, uh, if, it's bef- if it's after he died or if it's in a 12-year span. Usually when you're given a diagnosis, okay, you go to the doctor, and they say, okay, this is what you have. You have this long to live. I'm, I'm guessing that that's what this is, that he was given 12 months to live. And so Isaiah is recording this within a 12-month period that this is the time that he is going to die. Within 12 months, he'll be gone. And so what, is, what does he do? What does Isaiah do? He, he goes to temple, just like you and me come to church. He's mourning his friend. A lot of us show up to church for a lot of different reasons. Some of us come to church because of pain and loss. Some of us come for answers. Some of us come closer to Jesus. Some of us come to give thanks for the season that we just got out of. But we all come for different reasons. We all come because it makes us feel better. Isaiah went to the temple for the same reasons we come to church, for comfort and for hope. He finds himself making his way through the entrance, preparing to meet God, and is filled with need, hoping that the one who created all things will draw near to him as Isaiah draws near to God. This is what he saw. I want you to pay very close attention, church, because as I went through Isaiah 6, 1 through 8, it sounds as if I skipped over things. It sounds as if I just kind of read it, kind of meh, like I'm reading a book, like it's no big deal, on to the next chapter. There is a tremendous amount of learning, knowledge that is in this. Pay attention to what he saw. Let me take you there for a second. In verse 1 through 3, while there I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. With him were seraphim, each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their face. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another. Isaiah sits there and he's praying, much like you do. He goes to the temple because he's looking for answers. He's looking to mourn his friend. He goes to the temple to be comforted, to to find hope. And what does he see? He sees a third heaven. You say, third heaven. Yeah. Yeah. Let me help you with this. There's a first heaven, there's a second heaven, and there's a third heaven. Later on, Paul in 2 Corinthians 12.2 will talk about this third heaven. So what happens as he goes into the temples, Isaiah is teleported into the throne room of God, which is the third heaven. And he sees the Lord high and lifted up. He literally was in the presence of Yahweh. The Scripture's not clear on how this happens. This has happened before, if you can recall, in in the Old Testament. That this theophany, this this revealing of God to mankind, has happened on, on a couple of other occasions. But this is one in particular that he won't forget. So he's standing there before the Lord of hosts. Isaiah observes a couple things. This is what he saw. Isaiah observed that Yahweh was seated high and lifted up and sitting on his throne. His long robe fills the temple courts. And as he looks around the room, he realizes something. He's not alone. Verse 2. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. Two wings, they covered their faces. Two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Please note that nowhere else in the Bible except for here and in verse 6 are seraphim mentioned. Seraphim are a certain classification of angel, angelic beings that are made seraph or seraph is the hebrew word meaning it's it's one angel it's it's a singular form seraphim is plural they don't have s like we do in english to make it plural it's em like cherub cherubim seraph seraphim this is a multitude of angels specifically found in the throne room of god nowhere else is it mentioned in the bible only here a very special classification And with two wings, they covered their faces. with two wings, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. If I had to guess as to why they're covering their feet and their faces, I'd argue that they're too humble to be in the presence of a holy God. These are created beings like we're created. For us to stand in front of God, it's going to be like these guys. It would just be next to impossible. You don't feel worthy. You don't feel—you feel humble. You know what's interesting so far, and this is something that I took notice on. Notice that Isaiah never describes, or at least he hasn't yet, never describes Yahweh. His attention so far is on the robe that's filling the temple and on the angels that are flying around, to which he gives great accuracy to. Perhaps Isaiah is feeling like the seraphim, unable to to gaze upon the holy God. Verse three, and then they called to one another, "Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty; the whole earth is filled with his glory." And at the sound of their voices, the doorposts and the threshold shook, and the temple was filling with smoke. At this point, he's forgotten why he's there. I'm going to argue that his mourning for his king has taken a backseat to what he's witnessing. He's trying to keep this all together. And all of a sudden, the angels begin calling back and forth to one another. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Can we try something today? And kids, this is, this is your turn. Now, I know your mom and dad probably tell you to be quiet in church, and you guys are doing a fantastic job. I'm going to go ahead, and I'm going to strip that away. And I want you to be as loud as possible. I'll say that again, as loud as possible. Okay, you guys cool with that? You have my permission, all right? On this side of the room, I want you to say, and and parents get involved too, holy, holy, holy. Then over here, we're gonna say, holy, holy, holy. Let's do it a couple times, go with me. Holy, 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 holy. Again, holy, 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 again. Holy, 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 good. And the Bible says in verse 4 that the very foundations, the doorposts, in fact, the very foundations that Isaiah is standing upon, shook. Shook just simply by the sound of their voice. Now, I've been to a lot of sporting events. And sometimes I've been to events where I can barely hear the person next to me. Have you ever been somewhere where someone is saying something back and forth where the foundation shook? Doorposts. This stone temple is rattling. It's deafening. It's like a sound of a thousand Niagara Falls. You can't even think. Your senses are overwhelmed. My friends that are from California who have lived through any kind of earthquake would say that this probably hit on a 7.6 on the Rector scale. Shaking, trembling, as they call back and forth. If it's not enough, To see the Lord high and exalted with his train, his robe filling the temple, that these angelic creatures call back and forth to one another, that the ground is shaking on their feet. The temple is filling with smoke. Put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for just a second. Best guess Isaiah's wide awake. This is not business as usual. This is not something that he's used to seeing. He's standing there, much like you and I would stand there, in awe. With his mouth hanging wide open. Probably too scared to move a muscle. His pulse quickens. His senses are on overload. No one up until this point could have even begun to explain what this would look like. He's frozen. Daniel had a similar experience like that back in Daniel 10. When the angel came to visit Daniel... Do you guys remember that story when the angel came to talk to Daniel? Daniel couldn't stand up let alone talk. And this is these are angels. He's in front of the Lord of Hosts. And then it hits him. This is what Isaiah realizes. woe to me he cried i am ruined for i'm a man of unclean lips and i live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the lord almighty translation i'm dead my goose is cooked lights are out show's over Isaiah comes to the realization of what it means to not be holy in front of a holy God. You know, it, 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 what interests me is how Isaiah comes to this realization on his own. I'm often amused by, by people who are believers in Jesus, new Christians and old, people who don't know Yahweh, don't know God, don't know Jesus, don't have a relationship. I'm always, um, it's conflict for me. It's, it's, it's amusing. Uh, it's humbling. It's, uh, it's annoying. When I hear people say things like, when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God what I think. Okay? When, when, when I get there, I'm just going to give him a piece of my mind. Really? Okay. I don't see that here in the text at all. In fact, I have two accounts that I've just given you that men have stood before the Lord of hosts and said nothing. Woe is me, for I am ruined. Not a word spoken. And Isaiah realizes this as he stands in the presence of God. I want you to notice something. There's no shaking of the head. There's no rolling of the eyes. There's no wagging of the finger. Not a word is said. Isaiah, simply by being in the presence, like I said, realizes his faults as he cries out in confession. Look at the text. It's right there. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This church is a cry for forgiveness. This is a confession before a mighty God. He's agreeing with the Lord. He's agreeing with the Lord that he missed the mark and that he sinned. In that moment, Isaiah is in need. He needs to be forgiven. And what he realizes is that the one who can forgive him is the one who sits on the throne that's judging him. High and lifted up. The temple's filling with smoke. And Isaiah can't move. And it is confession. Isaiah pleads his case. It may not be a lengthy confession, but it's a good confession. One that's running over with honesty and sincerity. I am a man of unclean lips. He says, Lord, forgive me, for I struggle with profanity. Father, forgive me, because... These lips have told lies against other people. I've stretched the truth at times. I haven't been been honest in my dealings with my brothers and sisters. I like the fact that when I tell the coolest stories, that I get invited to the coolest parties. I like the fact that everyone laughs at my jokes. Unclean lips can manifest themselves in different different ways in our lives. But one thing is true. Isaiah realizes this without a word spoken. Isaiah admits that his followers have influenced the world, has influenced him and his decisions. Look, it's right there. And I live among people of unclean lips. That's to say, Lord, the world has rubbed off on me and I have sinned And I've perfected it. I've perfected lying. I've perfected telling stories. I've perfected swearing. No doubt in this congregation, there are some of us here, including myself, that struggle with sin. And right now, you're probably turning over in your minds certain areas that you felt the Spirit has been maybe tapping you on the shoulder and trying to encourage you to give over and confess and to deal with. We all struggle with sin. All of us. I hope that you take time to consider what areas you're struggling with and bring that before holy God. But here's Isaiah, ruined, standing before the one who holds his future. He confesses his sin. Now he's waiting for what's due. A hush falls over the courtroom. There's silence. You can almost cut the tension with a knife. Tears are streaming down his face as he hangs his head. Filled with guilt and shame and unable to look up, he stands there, defeated. His only defense, a short confession and need. In one hand, a short confession. In the other hand, need. He literally has nothing else to offer as defense. You see, folks, that's what we bring to Jesus in our sin. Those are the only two things that we can offer a confession and need. That's all you bring. That's all you brought before you were saved. You didn't bring him anything. He doesn't need anything. That's the whole point of being self sufficient. You don't need anything. But what you brought was need. Watch what happens next. What is God's response? Verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sins atoned for. I love this verse. Look at it with me. Then. When you see then, ask when. When. Uh, What a transition. Then. Notice how Isaiah is waiting for a response. No one has spoken a word. Right away after his confession of sin, one of the seraphs flies towards him. He brings with him a burning coal. Leviticus 6.12 talks about this fire from the altar. The, uh, but the, the altar of the fire must be kept burning. What's interesting is where the altar is placed. Just before the outside of the holiest of holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God was in the temple. Only a veil separated the two rooms And the altar of incense burned morning and night to symbolize the removal of sins before the priest entered into the presence of God. That's what Uzziah got hit with. He went in there to do that, and he had no business in there. And God hit him with leprosy. This encounter, I believe, is one of those coals from that burning altar. Verse 7, The seraph takes the coal from the altar and places it on Isaiah's lips like the sound of a red-hot burning iron. Your guilt has been taken away, and your sins have been atoned for. Any idea why he touches his lips? God is a way of pinpointing and removing that very area of sin in our lives. He's a master surgeon. He can take that sin out of your life just like that. The courtroom scene plays out. The judge has reviewed all the facts of the case. He's considered the arguments and he's ready to render his decision. And Isaiah stands there. Head hanging. Hand shaking. Not guilty. I find the defendant not guilty on all charges. Isaiah, you're free to go. Just like that. Isaiah can't believe his ears. The judge has shown mercy upon him. He exhales sharply with the emotion still very real to him. Tears of shame and guilt have been replaced with tears of joy. Unspeakable joy. In that moment, the weight of sin has been removed. Restitution paid for. He's a free man. And just after the verdict is read... Verse 8, then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? There it is again, then. Ask yourself when. When? Right now, immediately after Isaiah's sin has been removed, Yahweh asks an interesting question. Whom shall we send? Who will go for us? What makes it interesting is Isaiah is the only one standing there. He's the only guy. It's not that as God's asking this question, as He doesn't know or He hopes. What He's doing is, is He giving Isaiah another opportunity. Now that He has been cleansed, your opportunity to serve is upon you. Will you go? Is the question. And what's Isaiah's response? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Here's a man who went into the temple for answers has his sins revealed only as a confession and a need for a defense he asks for forgiveness and is restored to a righteous standing with god does any of this church sound familiar because it should don't we come to church for answers get convicted by the spirit only then to confess only then to confess and have a need as a defense ask for forgiveness and then we're restored we do this week in and week out. Isaiah accepts the calling of service. Remarkable passage. Remarkable. Let me call your attention to a couple details that we've left out. As Isaiah accepts this opportunity, as he, as he raises his hand and says, I'll go, send me. This is early on in his ministry. Isaiah is a young man. He, he doesn't know uh, what's going to happen down the road. He doesn't know that he's going to to write 66 chapters in what's the largest book or one of the largest books in the Old Testament. He has no idea how God's going to use him to talk about the Messiah. He has no clue about that. He has no idea that he's going to marry a prophetess and that they're going to have two sons. His whole life stands before him. Send me. Why? Because he was available Yahweh knew that the message that all of Israel needed to hear, the region for that matter, was a message of salvation. Tucked into this passage is salvation. Lord, I screwed up. I'm a man of unclean lips. Save me. Not guilty. Free to go. That's the good news, isn't it? The guilty go away unpunished. You ever thought about that? All of us in here go away unpunished. And who receives it? Jesus. I can't think of a better way for Isaiah to preach salvation than to experience it firsthand. And that's exactly what he did. He experienced salvation firsthand, he experienced forgiveness of sins firsthand for the purposes of him to go out and to tell everyone else about that. What about you? Has the removal of your sins become an abstract portion in your life? What I mean by abstract and concrete, it's a concept which is abstract. In, in child uh, rearing, uh, there's, there's talk about how kids learn. And, and we can have a concept of, hey, if you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. And that's, that's, that's abstract. Our son, Luke, uh, was a recipient of that learning process uh, not that long ago. In fact, his mother and I had told him, Luke, you need to stay off the treadmill, bro. And Luke's like, who are you? Luke, you can't go on the treadmill, man. You, you, you got to stay at the treadmill. You're going to get hurt. I'm Luke. A short while after, we had kids running up from our basement outside kick open the door and cry out, Luke's in trouble. He needs your help. To where my wife sprinted in there to find Luke pinned underneath the treadmill with the motor running, burning his skin. Only then to remove him, we bandaged him up, and he's better. But we do that from the abstract to the concrete. What was abstract, Luke, don't touch that, became concrete for him. Now, as a parent, all I need to do is say, Luke, remember the time when you were trapped underneath that belt? I just said it on the car ride yesterday. He remembered it became concrete. And I'm asking you, is the Lord concrete in your life or is he abstract? Are the messages that you hear from this pulpit preached in week in and week out, are they abstract or concrete? Are you applying what you're learning, church? And what did the Lord say? Isaiah said, send me. And the Lord said, go. Application. This is where I go from preaching to prodding. This is where I become very unpopular. Not that I was popular to begin with. I'm not popular. Application. Of the three steps in in creating a formula for success or creating change, there are three that stand out. First, You have to recognize that there is a problem. Second, you need to create a plan that works. And the third thing, which is probably one of the most important, is application. Applying these truths to your life. You can't do it alone. It requires commitment, repetition, patience, and above all, support. Application also requires availability. You need to be available to do this. And so let me ask you a question. Is God your priority? Is God your priority? We just had that sign out front. On either side, it said, is God your priority? While that was used as a way and a means to draw people into a closer, maybe, thought process of, of you know who is God and, and what does that mean and whatever else, and it was meant for passerbys, what it's asking is a deeper theological question. And the question is simply this. What do you think about God? I would argue that it's not just for those people that were out there that don't know Christ, that don't go to church. I would turn that internally and ask each one of you. Is God your priority? Where does he rank in your day-to-day? In other words, if you were to list in an ascending or descending order, where does he fall? Is he abstract or is he concrete? If I were to ask you, church, community, Christian fellowship, do you know what the purposes of this church are? Don't raise your hand. My guess is we would all come up with different answers. In an audience like this, we would all come up probably with different answers. So that's why I'm here is to try to redirect and refocus. Anyone ever heard of G3? You don't count. You do count, but not in this question. got to walk that back. Somebody strike that off the thing. You do count. (laughs) G3 is our initiative. What is this? What is it? Say it with me. Okay, gather, grow, and go. Folks, (laughs) there's more to this than simply finding three words that start with the letter G. Brothers and sisters, this is a formula for change. The three G's spell out a battle plan with a how to do it. Instructions. There's an invitation to gather, which comes from Hebrews 10, 24 to 25. There's a a calling to grow in his likeness that comes from Galatians 4, 19. And there's an imperative. An imperative that I might add has been given to each one of us once we've accepted Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior to go make disciples. Not to sit on your hands and let God do the work. That's not how it works. This has been a standing mission of the church to go make disciples. This was not just for Jesus' day. This is for us in 2019 and going into 2020. For us here in Northern Virginia. We are part of God's plan of salvation. You and me, we have our part in this that we need to play. And that's why when you gave your life to Christ, you weren't called immediately into his presence. You were left here to do a job. Now, if you're an overthinker like I am, Let me help you uncover. Let me help answer. Maybe a struggle that you've been having for years. The question that sometimes looms in our mind of what does God want me to do? I have the answer. I have some answers. I don't have them all. But I have this one. Go make disciples. If you're wondering what God wants you to do, Go make disciples. There's just one problem with that. And this may sting a little bit. As you're invited down from the bleachers, as you're invited down from your section seats, from the booths that you find yourselves comfortable in at times, to come onto the field of battle and join up with us to go make disciples, you got to be Ready? How on earth are you going to be ready if you won't bother to gather? Gather. Grow. Go. You see, God's plan for CCF, this G3, has faded into the background. It would seem that. This once battle plan has been rolled away and placed out of sight. What was once handed down as means uh, to remind those who have a divine mission is at risk of being forgotten. Unfortunately, it's become white noise to us and un- uninteresting to others. Brothers and sisters, I ask you, what have you allowed to take the place of this mission? What keeps you from answering the call? Who will go? Are you too busy? Do do you have other plans? Do you say I'm going to sign up for the Bible study and then don't show? I don't mean one time. I mean all the time. How invested are you on your spiritual growth? You're not, hear me say this, church, you are not going to grow through osmosis. You are not going to sit in those chairs and magically, boink, grow. You have a, to put an effort into that growth. It's not enough to sit there and listen and absorb like Thanksgiving dinner than to pass out on the couch and get up and eat more, which is what we do sometimes. When come to church, we come to church and we consume and consume and consume and consume and, consume and forget to tell other people where to consume, where to eat, where to grow. Sadly, some of us are no longer interested or in awe of God. What's replaced your first love? I'm not here to tell you what you're not doing. That's not my job. I'm here to remind you, like Isaiah reminded Israel I am not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I don't even know a prophet other than Isaiah and a few other ones in the Bible. I have not been gifted with the gift of prophecy. I'm here to call your attention, you church, to your special relationship that you entered into when you accepted Jesus Christ. That's my job. Because I also work for the Trinity, associates, attorneys at law. Will you go? I'm I'm here to help you see that you have a purpose that this purpose is to represent Christ here on earth, That sh- to remind you of the mission that you're on. You do have a purpose. I would like to encourage you today to gather for the purposes to grow and for the purposes to go. And I feel I need to be very clear. I'm not talking about those that come to church here and, and you can't make it because maybe some restrictions or you missed your kid's game or whatever else. I'm not here to, to, to put guilt on you. That's not what I'm trying to do. In fact, I can't do that. If you're feeling guilt, that's the Spirit, not me. I'm doing what I'm told to do, which is to remind you in truth and in love. Can I have the band and the ushers come up, please? Brothers and sisters, what happens in community, and this is why I'm pushing so hard for this G3 initiative that we have, is because I want to see you grow spiritually. I want to see you mature spiritually so that you can tell others about Jesus Christ in a manner that is, for them to understand, For the, it's easy for them to understand, but you yourself need to understand yourselves on how to do that. In an article uh, titled, Intentional Spiritual Growth in Small Groups, written in Christianity Today, Amy Jackson argues, listen to this. Although we have good intentions, we may not see change we're hoping for. And that's because so few of us have considered what it takes to really grow. To get the results we desire, we must take a step back and ask, how do we grow? If we're to be intentional in our formation, we must understand the process. Essentially, all growth begins with a desire, a yearning for a change. We must decide that we want to grow. She continues, but the desire is simply not enough. We must allow our desire to propel us forward to gain knowledge that will help us see things differently. This knowledge will turn into changed behavior and a new way of life. As we experience this new way of life, we develop new desires for change and for growth, and the cycle starts over and over again. So I have to ask you, what's keeping you from making God your priority? How important is it for you to grow? God's looking for imperfect people to answer his perfect question. Will you go? Will you take this opportunity? Are you available? What are you waiting for? Go. It was on the seventh attempt, seventh or eighth attempt, I can't remember, uh, and I just had had enough. I decided to call the operator and ask for an emergency breakthrough. I wasn't going to let a little thing like a busy signal stop me from missing out on one of my greatest nights. Some of us here need to recognize that God has been calling you to do some amazing things for his kingdom. The problem is, is that he keeps getting a busy signal. Until today. Today. I pray that this message has been the emergency breakthrough that you need. Let's pray. Father God, I want to I thank you for this message. I want to thank you for what you have revealed in your text, uh, not just to me, but to, to those that are in an earshot of this message. Lord, I want to open these altars up and should there be any sin that has has, uh, been weighing people down, I ask that they they come to the altar, ask for forgiveness. But more importantly, Lord, that you start a work in their hearts, the work that you've already started, Lord, that you continue to finish that. But that you convict them in a manner to see that their spiritual growth is something that you desire so much. That you will use whatever pain whatever suffering they've gone through, whatever challenges that they've had to overcome, that you've been there the whole time. Use that, Lord, for your glory to reach a broken world, one that don't know you like we know you. Help us to understand that you are our priority and to reshuffle the deck and reprioritize our list with you on top. Father, we love you. We owe everything to you. We ask this in your Son's name, in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray, and through the power of your Spirit. Amen.